I'm Nigel Harris, and some of you may know me. I've been around in railway journalism, magazines, books, DVDs since ooh, the early part of the 12th century. <laughs> or put another way, 1981. Now, if you've been consuming railway stuff for even a short period of time, you may think you've seen it all. Well, trust me, you haven't. You certainly haven't. Um, I'm Richard Bowker. Um, some of you may remember me as co-chairman of the Virgin Rail Group. Um, Good thing, yeah. Well, I, I've still got the scars, that's for sure. Um, I actually uh, run ragged at that time by the West Coast route modernisation, as it was then, uh, and the disruption that that all brought about, something that we do seem to now be destined to repeat. You'd think we'd learn from history. Back to uh, the future. Back to the future, indeed. Um, and I kind of paid for my sins, really, because in 2001, I was then appointed to succeed Sir Alistair Morton as the uh, Chairman and Chief Executive of the Strategic Rail Authority and arguably sort out part of the mess that I'd, I'd, I'd helped create. Um, and that was a job that I did till 2004. I've done quite a bit on um, railways since then in terms of National Express and some international stuff, but you could say it's it's in the blood. Actually, um, talking to Virgin Rail Group, I've got a feeling that that was the first time we met was on that, um, was on that press trip to Fiat's factory in Civiliano. Yes, it was. Um, Chris Green rang me up, dear old bloke he is, and said, um, Nigel, he said, we're, we're running this press trip, he said, and there's a railway media trip, and there's a, um, a, a wider press trip, he says, and we'd like you to go on the wider one if you wouldn't mind awfully, because they don't believe a word we tell them, and they'll believe you. <laughs> and for anybody who's not aware, Chris Green um, was, was um, often referred to as the best chairman that British Rail never had. Uh, he was a remarkable character. Well, he is a remarkable character. Um, and um, if some, hopefully somebody we might be able to talk to at some point. But uh, when Chris said, um, would you mind awfully, what it meant was, this is what you're doing. But he made it such a pleasure to help him out, he did. didn't he? He did. He absolutely did. And and, it, and he was great fun to work with. It was fantastic. Um, the other thing we've got in common, apart from nice trips to Italy, we are, of course, both fellow Lancastrians. Is there any finer thing you could wish to be no well that's the end of that then <laughs> that's, kind of, that's brought that to a close um i'm actually from um, i was born in oldham but uh grew up and went to school in blackburn you of course um were from the other side here we go the better side the burnley side well i've heard burnley called many things i'm not sure better a better side is one of them um one of the things that uh i am passionate about is football and um Absolutely love my football. Um, Blackburn Rovers supporter, finest football club in the land. We'll hear no uh, comment otherwise. Um, and um, I seem to make you because you're you're not a football fan, we know, but you've got an affiliation with um, Burnley's ground at Turf Moor. Do you know when I was at school in Blackburn, um, we often we often used to say um, Turf Moor was used by NASA for deep space training. Do you know why? Total lack of atmosphere. Boom. Tish. <laughs> Uh, in fairness, they've done a, they've done fantastically well in recent years, and it's slightly irksome that they're in the Premier League and we're not. I have um, I, I have an affinity for the place. I, I worked there for the entire summer of nineteen seventy five before I went to uni really? as a painter. What we, what did you paint? Oh, what didn't I paint, Richard? The, in those days, there were terraces. Yeah, at the wonderfully named Bee Hole End. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I'm allowed to say, good job it wasn't an A Hole End. <laughs> 
This is by the, this is Alistair Campbell's football club. I is, know, I know, I know. Anyway, I painted everything because they had terraces and there were those crush barriers that you could lean on. Oh yeah, and there was sheet steel fence right, right. And I got very adept at paint spraying and doing that. But the most soul destroying job was you have no idea how big a football stand is than when it's completely empty and you're stood at the first seat on the bottom row with your two and a half litre tin of varnish and a two and a half inch brush and you're looking up at two and a half thousand flip up seats that you got to varnish. Well, it could have been worse than what it was like for the poor players coming out onto the pitch. Don't do it girls. Anyway, um, enough about football and, and fine Lancastrian clubs. We've got this podcast. We've called we it. Have. We've called it Green Signals. Um, what, what are we going to be doing? Why are we doing this? Well, we we had a long sort of discussion about. I say long, not not very long, really. Um, but wanting to sort of add add our own take and our own comment on what's going on in the railway industry. Um, so there's lots of reasons we're doing this. Um, we're doing it because railways are vitally important to they the are. economy. They're vitally important to society, and in a fight. Uh, in dealing with climate change. Um, so we need to be talking about railways positively. Um, they are a big part of the answer to the question, how do we tackle climate change and make a meaningful difference? It's um, and, and it's something that's not really, I don't think, uh, discussed or explained enough. Um, it's a multi-billion pound industry. Uh, but as far as we can tell, you know, no one's ever successfully created a platform for comment uh, and challenge and debate and we thought we'd try and do something um, about that in a way that explains it to the widest audience possible. And that includes politicians. They seem to be very confused on, on rail. Um, conservatives appear to have forgotten what they're for. Um, Labour seem to be making lots of grand statements, but there's not a lot of um, how yet. Um, and, you know, other parties, the Greens, well, that'll be an interesting episode when we get to talk about their policy on rail. Um, Talking of which, fun. The other thing we're actually going to do is we're going to have quite a lot of fun on this. It's going to be serious. It's going to be hopefully interesting, but it's also going to be some fun, isn't it? Well, it is because it gives us an opportunity to um, hold them to account. Yeah. Ask them difficult questions. And with your background and mine, we know what they are. And we're, we're not going to let them get away with it. Your opening comment there that railways are important. How good it would be if the government thought that? Um, which is an interesting question. But what's it going to be? Well, you and I have been discussing railways since you left the SRA. You might not have been very prominent on the, on the railway scene here, but you and I have stayed in touch and we've had endless discussions about this. And there's a whole load of stuff we could look at. Um, you know, why does Rishi Sunak hate trains so much would be a good one. Do we need to nationalise the railways as if they're not already? Um, what went wrong with privatisation? What went right with privatisation? You know, because 800 million people on the last day of BR, 1.6 billion before before the, the the lockdown. How do we get more freight on the railways? Why can't we build trains that work anymore? And that's not a new problem, is it? I remember Sir Alistair Morton used to say the damn things just don't work out the box, and they ought to. Um, Great British Railways. <laughs> well, that went well. Um, ticket officers, an exercise in ignoring three quarters of a million people, it would seem. Um, reversing the beach enclosures. Now, I know that's a really good one for you. Wait. Fuel of the future, hydrogen or battery, and a Christmas special. You know, listen, a Q&A. That would involve everybody. But Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but I'm not wearing a paper hat. <laughs> but we cannot 
even in this taster, not mention the recent scandal of HS2, can we? No, well, we certainly can't um, overlook possibly the biggest decision that's been taken on the railways um, in the last, you know, in for many decades, and one which will impact it on on um, on the for, for decades to come. I mean, that's how big this decision is. I mean, some of the things we've been looking at, and some of the things we will explore in 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 uh, in, in podcasts to come, are some of the things we've actually found out about HS two, and we've been um, discussing. I mean, for instance. Um, one of the things I've been doing quite a lot is reading all the um, business case uh, literature about HS2. Uh, for those that have, uh, are in danger of switching off already, a business case really sets out why we're doing it. You know, wh what are the costs, but what are the benefits? What's the point? And you have found out some stuff which is argued, well, it is exclusive. And I think some of it's a scandal that we're going to be... Um, we're going to be looking at it's, um, yeah it's it's stuff that's just not been in the public debate and it's really important stuff so for instance um when you do a project you list all the benefits it turns out that a very significant number of the benefits of hs2 have not been quantified right they've not been quantified and they include things um such as the released capacity so we know that hs2 will take all the fast trains off the network, allow us to run a lot more trains, including freight trains, local trains, regional trains. The, the social benefits of doing that is not part of the business case. So just to interrupt then, you have to get used to that. Um, not a penny or a pound of that benefit has been counted. I've been saying for years on TV and radio that once you move the 47 expresses off the West Coast, you could fill it up with a hundred mile an hour interurban service for all yeah. the stations that aren't, aren't served and there's extra freight. It never occurred to me, to my shame, to say, why is not, what's that worth? I, I kind of assumed it had been included in the BCR, but it hasn't. No, and, and it's actually worse than that. So there are a whole um, uh, group of other uh, wider economic benefits that also have not been quantified. Um, we've not quantified the level of foreign direct investment that may come as a result of creating uh, HS2, yet we know, oh, and we've also, by the way, not counted um, what's called clustering or induced development where things change because of HS2, yet we know around Curzon Street, the Birmingham area, that that has happened. Well, look what happened around St Pancras, King's Cross. Um, yeah. So... We will be doing an episode where we will yeah. dig into these, and it must be hundreds of millions of pounds worth of value and benefits, which, to be clear, have not been included. Or if they have, they've been kept out of the public debate. No, they've not been included. The business case documentation says we think they're there. In fact, we know they're there, but it's very difficult to calculate them, so we won't. But, as you say, that has a... Massive implication. That is outrageous. Well, and we'll more... be into it. We will be doing. We that. will be going into that in some detail. Um, um, other things that we have um, found out about um, uh, HS2 uh, include, um, well, I say found out. Interesting comment by Henry Morrison, the chief executive of Northern Powerhouse, the other day. Good man. A very good man. A very passionate, very committed, but also very smart. And um, Henry said, you know. As a result of the decision to cancel HS2 to Manchester, the economy of the North in 
however many years. 20 time, years. 20 years time will be smaller um, compared to what it is today. And that's a big statement. But actually, um, since we know that what HS2 would have made a profound contribution towards is this so-called leveling up, um, bringing, generating more economic activity in the north, in the Midlands and so on, um, to rebalance the economy, that is now not going to happen in anything like the same way. And um, just let that hang in the air. The North's economy will be smaller in 20 years, according to Henry. So we'll certainly be looking into that. Well, um, that's where we're from. So we kind of care. It absolutely um, is. Uh, what else? Um, I mean, one of the other big issues of, of HS2, this recent decision, is we've effectively frozen it um, in time. What do we mean by that? Well, by building phase one, the bit that the government has said they're going to build, um, from um, London, Euston, or Old Oak Common, depending on what day of the week it is, um, and then finishing it uh, in Birmingham, but also with a bit north of there to join the West Coast Main Line. What that means is there's no more capacity, there's no more trains that we can run north of that point. Right? That sets the capacity. That's what freezes it. And yet, guess where all the really big bottleneck and log jams are? I'll put, they're north. Well done. <laughs> so there can be no more passenger trains, expresses, and there can be no more freight as a result of this. Freight really does get hurt by this decision because um, the, 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 the line is, is really sort of chock-a-block north of Litchfield. And what HS2 did was it obviously got the fast trains off and enabled you to run more other stuff. Freight, freight is really badly hurt by it. But actually, so is everything else. There was only ever two ways to create more space on the railway north of in, in the north. You either did a big transformational jump like HS2, or you do what the kind of government's alluding to now, which is lots and lots of little schemes and upgrades, which we know are expensive, disruptive, massively disruptive, and don't really ever fix the problem. And how did our Prime Minister describe all this? Well, one of the things that we will be doing, no doubt, is looking into more, more detail around the most recent policy statements. But, but he said this, for instance. He said, um, our biggest investment priority, taking up a third of the entire transport investment budget, we chose HS2, a scheme for long-distance rail journeys between a handful of cities and London. The reason for doing HS2 was to get the high-speed trains off the existing network so that we could free up the capacity for everything else we wanted to do and create connectivity between the regions. And he's right that it will speed up the journeys between cities and London. Also massively sped up the journeys between, say, Birmingham and Manchester, which, which was, was a big thing. absolutely critical for levelling up and regional connectivity. And that now not happen and to sort of suggest that the only reason we did it was to get to london quicker that's just wrong and that's just willfully misleading well it, it, it's it's absolutely wrong and the problem is it's it's it sort of uh, reinforces the misunderstanding that's out there and hopefully that's something we can do something about so one more big point i suppose before we wind up our trailer here is we understand that principle in other areas don't we of taking the fast trains off to create capacity on the because we did it in the 1950s with the motorways. We had terrible log jams in Oakhampton and places like that. And some bright person said, let us build 
a high-speed road network which can alleviate the, the, the problems on the tightly packed A roads and there will be more capacity all round. This is no different. That's why HS2 was called HS2. It was meant to foster thinking of a growing network. That's, well, that, that's right. And the other fascinating thing about the motorways, um, and you kind of look, got to look at where they were at the moment in time. As you say, you know, late 50s, Britain just coming out of um, austerity. It was only not long since the Second World War. And more freedom, more economic growth, um, people having more money to be able to go and do stuff. They wanted to get out. They wanted to go in the cars. They didn't really want to uh, do it the old way, but the road network just couldn't cope with that. And what's really interesting about it, somebody, somebody somewhere, I'm sure it was a group of people, had a vision. And they knew, I, I suspect quite a lot of them were not alive to see it, you know, the last, um, the last motorway finished. But it was a vision and it was a strategy and it was transformative. And that is what HS2 was. Genuine visionaries do that, don't they? So Christopher Wren never lived to see St. Paul's Cathedral finished. I think it took 38 years to build. Capability Brown never saw any of his great garden. No, they, so I think that is a really very important point, which we'll go through. So, yeah, it's, it's a, it is a very interesting um, uh document, uh, decision, but the good news is we've got Network North. And, you know, I honestly, I've been looking at transport policy for a long, long time and been involved in developing it and all that kind of stuff. I, I've never seen um, in all those years a document so lacking in in strategic coherence or or kind of rigorous logic and analysis than this Network North document. It It is, I mean, it gets, in my view, it gets an awful lot of the justifications wrong. Um, and then it just produces a list of other stuff, which is, is it's not, it's disconnected, you know. Well, I've been reading transport strategic policy documents and regulatory documents, they were always fun, um, for as long as you have. And... It comes across to me as a journalist more like an electioneering document than a, than a policy document. Well, but we can get into that. We can, because the one thing it's not is a strategic policy document. Okay, let's leave it there, shall we, for now, Richard? Um, great little chat there. I enjoyed it. It gives an idea of the sort of thing that we're going to be talking about and how we'll be talking about it. It will be different. Um, Please have a look for us on Twitter. You can find us. We want you to be part of the team. I'm not going to use the word follower. Um, we want you to be green signalers as well. So you can find our Twitter account or X account or whatever they call it now at, at green signalers. At green signalers. That's, that's us on Twitter. And if you're already a consumer of podcasts, and most people are when they're doing the ironing or washing the car or running or walking or whatever, take a look at uh, Spotify or wherever your podcast provider of choice is and sign up uh, so you don't miss any episodes. We haven't quite decided exactly when they're going to drop yet, but we will get the news out on our own Twitter accounts. Uh, mine's at Rail Nigel and yours is? Is at S Richard Bowker. And rest assured, we'll be, um, we'll be telling when it's coming soon. And we hope you'll join us and we hope you'll participate. Um, it's a big debate about a big subject that we all care about. And on a serious note, Richard and I love the railway and its people. 
and we spent our working lives in our own ways trying to make it better. And this is our next chapter doing just that. It certainly is. Do join us.